to the OPP Africana and South Asian Philosophies podcast series. Please join us to learn from thinkers around the world about the sub-themes Africana and South Asian philosophies and the values of our education of our public philosophy journal's second release, we call it Turn 2, in November 2021. Together we as students begin to inquire about traditions understudied in Euro-American philosophical institutions while investigating our own assumptions and the way our traditions present these philosophies. Here and beyond, we intend to participate in ameliorating the deficits in representation, respect and resources required to transform our minds and social worlds in search of how to live ethically. My name is Shizukiki Basak and today I'll be talking to Jonathan Egypt and Amir Kazanai, our African and South Asian specialists for the journal, about their experiences of studying and doing philosophy. Jonathan Egypt is a PhD student at King's College London, working on the Hatata Zaret Yaqob, a 17th century philosophical autobiography from Ethiopia, exploring Ethiopian literature and history writing, oriental scholarship in the shadow of empire, Gies philology and varieties of philosophical rationalism and critique. Amar Gadamai is a master's student at Oxford University uh, who works on Buddhist philosophy. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I thought that we could just get started with um, questions about like um, how your first introductions to um, doing any sort of non-Western philosophy, but also specifically um, Africana and South Asian philosophy. Mr. Amit? So yeah, I think for me, getting into South Asian philosophy sort of happens simultaneously with getting into philosophy. Um, I think maybe for other people it's, it tends to be different, but I, um, I think I, well, maybe that's not true. This kind of goes back to a point where my memory is a bit um, kind of blurred, but I was kind of interested in philosophical thinking, I think, when I was quite young. And then when I was 15, um, my religious studies teacher gave me a book on Buddhism called Buddhism Plain and Simple by Steve Hagen. Um, and that felt just like this light song moment. I, did, I don't think I ever had a kind of particular draw to um, South Asian philosophy before that. I think the things that I was interested in were these broader philosophical questions. Um, but Buddhism just felt like it had the, this, um, these answers to questions that I didn't really know I had, but they were really pertinent to me. Um, and it felt like I really just felt like encountered something that um, made sense in a way that nothing else did. It really felt like I remember like sitting there and thinking, I found the meaning of life now and I'm only 15 like that. Wow, I'm very lucky. Um, so, so since then, I kind of just took on an interest in Buddhism um, in particular. And it was always quite a, a, a personal kind of practical kind of spiritual interest. Um, but I also had this mind that was interested in philosophical issues. Um, and I did classics at um, school. I did Latin and Greek. So I was generally in the world of philosophy. And I had this kind of spiritual interest in Buddhism, a personal interest. And so those two things sort of combined and I ended up going, like the, the kind of obvious thing to do was to study theology and religion. Um, so I ended up doing that. And then my focuses in that sort of took me to, I think I was always more interested in the kind of philosophical aspects of theology rather than the historical ones. And then because of my interest in Buddhism, Indian philosophy is, is where I left. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if Amir's one was a bit of a, a natural sort of marrying together of an interest in Buddhism and an interest in philosophy, mine is certainly via the more sort of circuitous route in that I studied philosophy for, I think, uh, eight years at university, no, six, six, six or seven years at university before ever really coming across Africana philosophy as even a, uh, a sort of a possibility of something to study. Um, so my, my background in philosophy is much more sort of a traditional uh, analytic background. Um, I've always been interested in taking classes in the history of philosophy. But of course, the history of philosophy tends to be the history of the particular tradition that kind of culminates in the analytic academic philosophy that's done today. And the first possibilities I really had for doing the so-called non-Western philosophies was on a, a year abroad in in Paris, where there were classes on Indian philosophy, um, Arabic language philosophy, Chinese philosophy. And this was really a sort of a bit of an eye opener to um, the different ways that things could be studied. One of the things I was really impressed with there was that there was always the insistence on if you're wanting to understand the philosophy, you're going to need to know the languages. One of the things I always didn't particularly like about the analytic approach is the, the sort of insistence that we're getting at universal truths, but we're doing it by analysing the semantics of one particular language uh, on the edge of the world, or maybe a set of two or three languages all in this little corner in the European peninsula on the edge of the world. And it always seemed to me that without, you know, um, if, if you take a serious philosophical interest in language, you should probably take a serious philosophical interest in as many languages as possible. So uh, coming coming sort of back to uh, back to back to philosophy in, in the UK, I tried to sort of pick up ways of doing philosophy in, in, in some different languages. And um, this interest sort of led me down trying to just explore as many different philosophies from as many different parts of the world in as many different languages as possible. And so when I came across uh, the writing of uh, this this text called the Hatata Zeri Yaakob um, in, a, in an article in Eon, um, I was fascinated that there was a text um, that no one seemed to have heard about before written in, a, in an African language um, that seemed to be offering a lot of the same uh, ideas uh, and the same sort of general philosophical outlook that generally gets called modern philosophy at exactly the same time as Descartes was writing it. And really it was going down this, this Zeri Jacob uh, rabbit hole, uh, the question of its authorship, the question of um, other philosophical uh, antecedents in Africa and the general metaphilosophical questions that get raised by um, Africana philosophy that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm essentially just still in that rabbit hole that opening the Hatata Zeri Jacob opened up. So that's... <laughs> So I got here. Well, I, I guess that just uh, sort of touches on my next question on what your current research interests are and like mm. what you're working on at the moment. Yeah. Do you want to keep going? Yeah, so so my my doctoral mm. research at the moment focuses on this this text, the Hatata Zeri Jacob, mm. um, which, as, as you mentioned in the in the introduction, is this kind of philosophical autobiography. So it's written uh, in, in the first person from the perspective of a 17th century Ethiopian priest named Zeri Jacob, um, who's educated in the traditional Ethiopian uh, education system, um, comes into contact with uh, foreign ideas for the first time with the Jesuit priests who were at the, the court of the Ethiopian king at the time. Um, and in the sort of uh, ensuing sort of civil strife that goes on at the time, he's, he's forced to flee, um, takes refuge in a cave where he sits down and meditates uh, and composes this this philosophical work. Um, and 
as, as, as I said, with it sort of being contemporary with uh, Descartes' Discours de la méthode, a lot of people have thought that this is, um, you know, the foundation, this is, you know, an equivalent foundational work of modern philosophy, which evidently would change quite a lot of what we tend to think about in terms of the history and development of modern philosophy. I know that in recent times as well, Jonathan Ganeri's done some really interesting work on um, you know, thinking about what uh, modern or early modern philosophy would mean in a in a South Asian context. Um, and one of the sort of points of my research that I'm particularly interested in exploring is the idea of uh, global modern philosophy. So whether we might think about uh, the text that uh, Gennari talks about in The Lost Age of Reason and the Hatata Zeri Yaakob uh, and perhaps the works of uh, Chinese thinkers like Li Zhi, uh, as well as Descartes as responding to similar sort of distinctively modern predicaments in you know, a not unconnected sort of way. So one of the sort of approaches for thinking about that uh, is, is what we can call like a, a connected history of philosophy. And I'd say the sort of the main uh, orientation of my research is figuring out, uh, you know, what kind of a methodology we might need rooted in an analysis of the sort of particular material circumstances that are in common to these thinkers from different parts of the world. Um, and how that might help us think about all of these things together and how we might therefore try and write a truly global history of philosophy. Um, I suppose that's actually a secondary end. The first one is to figure out whether the text is actually uh, written by a 17th century Ethiopian or not, because there was a, a famous claim made by a 20th century uh, scholar of Ethiopian literature that in fact, far from being the work of this uh, eponymous Zeri Jacob, writing from a, a cave in 17th century Tigray, the text was actually fabricated by a 19th century uh, Ethiopian, uh, Italian monk. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the first question, I suppose, is figuring out the, uh, the, the authenticity debate and some of the sort of cultural political underpinnings of that debate uh, over the last hundred years. And then sort of, yeah, trying to trying to use that to think about this global global historiography of philosophy. Can I ask a question? Is that okay? On just, I'm curious about one thing that you just said, John. Yeah. Um, yeah. This whole like thing about um, modernity and modernity being something that a kind of category that we can use mm. across different cultural, mm. um, you know, worldviews and different places and in space and time um, is is interesting. It's something that I've come across specifically in the Islamic world. This idea mm. that before the influence of the West or as the influence of the West was was growing in the Islamic world. Um, there were Sufi thinkers, particular Sufi thinkers, who were coming up with some of the ideas mm -hmm. that we associate with modernity. Mm -hmm. um, I think in particular, kind of a reformulation of traditional thought and moving away from tradition, um, the authority of individual reason. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yeah, the whole idea about modernity being something that was arising in different places at, at a similar time is interesting. Mm -hmm. do, do you see that as a, a product of like Western colonial influence in these respective mm. places, or is that happening apart from that? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's it's a really interesting, really interesting sort of question. I think the the direction that I'm most interested in pushing the argument is um, one that doesn't emphasise the the primacy or the hegemony of, of of Western sources in constituting this kind of this kind of modernity, um, but that we think about these things as being a kind of globally co-constituted sort of system. So, of course, the sort of increase in, in, in global travel and trade um, that you get 
from sort of you know 1492 and uh, and sort of Portuguese Portuguese explorations onwards is one of the major catalysts. So when when we're thinking about the similar material conditions that we get in lots of places, one of the things that's similar is that different groups of people are being thrown into contact, kind of for the first time. So Zed Jacobs forced to argue with. Um, uh, you know, argue with these European scholars um, and sort of think about his ideas in response to that. But we also have cases like with um, the the Mughalè um, Dara Shuko, who comes up with this kind of um, syncretic work where he's so he's he's the heir to the Mughal throne, but he's very interested in uh, various forms of Sufism um, and with uh, and with Hinduism. So he interviews pandits. Uh, there's a, a European um, atomist philosopher Francois Bernier uh, at his court, and they're all sort of of exchanging these ideas in a way that's certainly not fundamentally driven by uh, European colonialism. You know, the, the European who's there is, um, you know, he's he's the guest of a vastly more powerful ruler than exists anywhere on the European continent, and he's one voice amongst many in these conversations. Certainly not a dominant one. Um, and so I think it's 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 sort of thinking about uh, modernity or uh, enlightenment maybe as the sort of intellectual. Uh, sort of counterpart to that as being something which is yeah jointly formed by by different peoples in different parts of the world at this stage um although obviously the sort of yeah the, f the further you go on the more that gets dominated by one particular view of what modernity and what enlightenment supposed to be to the point that people forget that there are any other alternatives um yeah. at all yeah, the idea of liberating modernity from western particularism but then still keeping it as a cross-cultural category. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I love and that. it's yeah, and it's 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 one of these things that's very much a work in progress. I mean, you have to sort of de decide and define what you take these important factors to be. Um, for me, the thing that I'm most interested in when it comes to uh, modernity or or to the idea of enlightenment and thinking about what that might mean in different cases is instead of sort of taking this set definition of enlightenment, like you know we might get in Kant's essay as you know the power to think for oneself or as you know, X, Y, or Z, we have, um, you know, enlightenment's, to, to me, what's interesting is just any kind of intellectual critique in the service of an emancipatory politics, any sort of intellectual critique of a system that gives us, um, yeah, a way of thinking about making human beings freer. Um, that sounds absolutely fascinating, but I also imagine that, like, you know, it's almost the worst of both worlds in the sense that you get pushback from historians as well as philosophers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. As long as you're pissing off both sides, you can feel confident and happy. <laughs> you're doing it right. Yeah. Uh, Amir, do you want to tell us about what you're working on at the moment? Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm doing a master's in the study of religion. Um, so the master's itself is structured so that people can come in and study um, non-Christian religions of whatever they want to. But I'm focusing on South Asian religions, so Buddhism and Hinduism in particular. Um, so I, I've done two um, extended essays. One on, um, so my first one was on this Hindu thinker, this um, ninth century Indian thinker called Abhinavagupta, who lived in Kashmir. And he is, um, He's a Kashmiri Shaiva, so he inherits this kind of particular religious tradition that's based on these tantric texts and has a, it's an idealist, um, an idealist philosophy that has a kind of particular understanding of consciousness and vibration. Um, so I was working on in him the relationship between reason and ritual. Um, so in, if you read his text, he says that um, he says that 
the highest yoga, the highest spiritual practice is tarka, is, is reason. Um, and so then you might like be led to the conclusion that he's some sort of rationalist. I think from a kind of particular modern Western interpretive lens, it's easy to start thinking that he's a rationalist in some way. Um, and, and particular people sort of do have that interpretation. But, and by rationalist, I mean that um, liberation, that spiritual life is constituted by an ascent to kind of particular um, rational formulations. Um, but then if you read his text and, he's, and you, you look at the bits where he's describing what Tarka is, he's like, ah, you can int intensify Tarka by practicing yoga, by doing ritual. So clearly he has a very different understanding of reason. Mm. Tarka then becomes this, this word that has a semantic range that covers both what we would think of as reason, but also ritual and yoga. So this kind of essay was trying to deal with what reason might look like in, in his thought as a whole, kind of dealing with ritual practice and he has a whole aesthetic theory. So how ritual then becomes this particular type of aesthetic experience where your rational conclusions gain a kind of experiential dimension. Um, so this, the broader sort of theme, I think that runs through a lot of these different projects is, is the relationship between spiritual life and philosophy, like philosophy as a spiritual practice. So then I did an, another essay on um, Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy and Mahayana Buddhist philosophy. And that was dealing with um, the seeming contradiction between what I call cataphatic and apophatic approaches to reality. So some Buddhist texts and sutras and philosophical works will say that there is absolutely nothing that has intrinsic nature, that it is substantial, that exists independently of the human mind. Um, and then other texts will say that, no, there is this, like lots of things are insubstantial, but there is a fundamental ground reality, the Buddha mind, the Buddha womb, um, that grounds everything. So these two things seem really contrary, and uh, they seem to be in tension. But I was trying to sort of reconcile the two in that they both have these self-referential paradoxes that occur in, in their thinking. So, and the, the classic one is like, this statement is a lie, right? It's a, it's a seeming self, um, self-contradicting statement. And so in the apophatic um, instance, you have these um, these statements like all all views, all views on the world are insubstantial, including this view. So it seems to be self-contradictory. But in the cataphatic ones, you say that, well, all words fall short of the ultimate reality, of course, including these very words that I'm speaking. So these paradoxes, um, although they although these two schools seem like they contradict, these paradoxes occur in both. And I was trying to make a conclusion about how those paradoxes can be indicative of the way in which these philosophies are a form of spiritual practice and that they're aimed ultimately not at achieving a kind of subtle philosophical position, but they're sort of religiously situated in the fact that their means, their methodologies of cultivating a kind of um, relationship to our thoughts, uh, experience beyond conceptuality, non-conceptual experience. Um, so yeah, those, those are two themes. And now, and now I'm working, and I can't really say too much because I'm in the process of it, we're working on um, this Buddhist text called the Bodhicari Avatara. It's a ninth century Sanskrit Buddhist poem and philosophical phenomenology. So Husserl, Heidegger, Merleau, Ponty, and trying to do a comparative reading in order to sort of try and bring out the fact that this text isn't, because you know, this text, I mean, we, maybe you could talk about this a bit later, but these texts are so often read as kind of the object, the indicative of the belief systems of, of other people out there, these Buddhist people who existed a long time ago. Um, but I think reading it with um, philosophical phenomenology is interesting because although the comparative project is, is for, it's a minefield, right? And, and that's an interesting issue. But 
doing that kind of reading allows them, I think, kind of brings the text to life as a as a text that's talking about human life and, and the structures of human life on the deepest level. So yeah, that's what I'm working on. Maybe, I mean, both of you could talk a bit more about the sources, actually, and um, maybe language, but also like other sort of, um, I guess, like, you know, barriers that you just have to um, cross to be able to do this kind of um, work with, not, especially when it comes to non-Western philosophy. If you'd be happy to continue, I'd like to hear about this, the languages of those texts. And But are they, are they, are they in Sanskrit or are they, most Buddhist philosophy is not in Sanskrit, is it? Or? Um, I think so. Buddhism starts in Pali, um, which is a language very related to Sanskrit. Mm. What, what I think scholars call early Buddhism are texts mm. written in Pali. Um, and then you have the Mahayana tradition that develops. Um, and all, most of the philosophy that's done in Mahayana in India, in, in South Asia, which is what I focus on, is in Sanskrit. And then Mahayana moves to China and East Asia and so mm -hmm. takes on those languages. But all, all of the texts and sources that I've worked from are in Sanskrit. Um, so yeah, Sanskrit is a beautiful and ridiculously difficult language. Um, I was lucky enough to study a little bit of it in first year when I came. Um, part of the theology degree, the undergraduate theology degree at Oxford means that in your first year you study a scriptural language. So you could do Sanskrit, but you could do Vulgate Latin, you can do Greek, you can do Pali, you can do Arabic. Um, so you have a kind of choice depending on what sort of religious focus you want to do. Um, I, I did Sanskrit, which was really good fun. But then by the time at the end of that year, you sort of start getting to terms with the language. And the way the course is structured is that you have to then drop it. But there's no mm. formal way of continuing your teaching. Um, there are informal ways and you can go to lectures. And I, I went to um, Nepal for um, uh, two summers after my first year to study Sanskrit um, in a sort of more traditionally South Asian context. But yeah, I, I still like don't have a firm enough grip with the language that I can sort of open the text in Sanskrit and, and read it. Um, I think that that's many years in the future. But what what I can do is with um, with text in translation, have a look at the Sanskrit and, and then get a sense of of the text in its original language. So it is it is a it's a barrier because some of these texts aren't translated. So when I was working with Abhinavagupta, the Tanchaloka, which is his big magnum opus summary, what well, kind of like his um, Duma Theologica um, is not translated yet. There, there are, I think there is one, um, what my tutor called a devotional translation. So one done in, in South Asia, um, in modern South Asian university. But I think that doesn't kind of, I mean, I, I wasn't able to access it, but, but it, he, I was sort of told that it doesn't have the kind of academic rigor. At least that was what was implied. Um, so I was, I was looking at Abhinavagupta, some of his smaller works and, the way that scholars would quote him in their secondary sources. So the language is a bit of a barrier, yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's, I guess, how I'm working with my sources, if that's helpful. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that even, you know, even when, and I'm, I'm in the same position as you, I can't, I, I'm, I'm not yet in a position where I can just pick up the Hathat Zeliakob and, you know, read it, read it off the page uh, without any problems. But it's interesting that you sort of notice, and it's maybe maybe more with philosophical texts than with some of the other things that you can study in an ancient language, like a play or whatever else. Um, there's so much that you can get off of short word lists, off of things like when you were mentioning earlier, these sort of interesting differences between reason and ritual. I can't remember the Sanskrit terms you used, but, you know, drawing out the fact that, ah, oh, well, this term, which can be habitually translated as reason, is obviously not 
exactly the same as as reason in the sense that we mean in the sense that uh, reason is not well reason is going to be largely similar in you know french for raison or in you know what, whichever other sort of european language but i mean to, to take that example with 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 the one that i'm working on in so the, the hatta tazeri yakob is as you mentioned earlier it is, is written in gers gers is uh, also a, a dead language and then it's not spoken sort of as a mother tongue by anyone anymore. It's still the liturgical language of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Uh, it's closely related to the modern Ethiosemitic languages and more distantly to Hebrew and Arabic. Um, but, right, so yeah, the example of, of reason, as you said earlier, in, in Gers, the term which is translated most often as reason, as a faculty of reason, because we have the same thing here, as you mentioned, Amir, with, with your thinker that um, people like to call him a rationalist. And whether we can make sense of calling somebody a rationalist when the term they're using has this importantly different semantic field. So in the case of Gers and the Yaakov, the word he uses is lub, um, which literally is the heart. And the heart in most Semitic languages, I think in Hebrew and Arabic too, is seen as the seat of the intellect and the seat of reason, quite as you know, opposed to the sort of general use of heart in European languages, which is, you know, you choose your, you know, your, your heart over your head or something, which is, you know, emotion over reason. And you think that obviously that kind of distinction between emotional thought and rational thought is not really going to hold up in quite the same way when we've got this completely different metaphor for the place that's meant to be the seat of reason. And even just sort of, you know, having pointing out these sort of small, subtle differences in a single philosophical term. Uh, which you know you might find difficult to read in in the overall sentence, already gives you a huge amount of philosophical material to work with, right? We already have some very different ideas about when people are making certain claims about, uh, you know, reason that they're actually saying something really very different than what we might be initially thinking of. Something that might seem quite familiar to us is actually expressing something really very different, or vice versa. And I think the first thing that that's really important for is cautioning against really um sort of superficial parallels because there's often the sort of attempt when you have this kind of comparative work that you know we're reading through you know some really interesting sanskrit texts and we think oh my god here's the here's the indian montaigne right it's just the same as you know saying what montaigne's saying or we come across you know uh the ethiopian descartes which is the thing that everyone wants to say for zediac or but we come across you know the uh the, the the mayan plato or something like that and these temptations to sort of draw these analogies based on, you know, what might not be a particularly rigorous kind of translation, just of the fact that, you know, we have this word reason here and we have this word reason here. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the, knowing knowing the languages, even if it's, you know, not necessarily to the, the point that you can sort of, you know, skim read them and, and remember them off by heart is is number one really important for sort of cautioning against some of the obvious mistakes that can be made in comparative philosophy. Um, and just an incredibly rewarding philosophical source itself. Um. Yeah, it's funny, it kind of reminds me, yesterday I was reading a book by a guy called Tuck, um, and it was on, it's, it's um, a, a work on um, the project of comparative philosophy, in particular with the interpretation of an Indian philosopher called Nagarjuna. And he's talking about how, if you look at the history of the West interpretation of Nagarjuna, it's this kind of process of saying, no, first he's a nihilist, like in the 19th century, they, there's, they have a sense of what nihilism might be. So then mm -hmm. Nagarjuna gets placed in uh, the box of nihilism. And then they say, no, he's a Neo-Kantian. No, he's a Neo-Hegelian. Um, no, he's an analytic logician. No, he's, um, 
And then now it's about Wittgenstein. Now it's all about the Wittgensteinian mm. comparison and then the Davidian comparison. He's a deconstructionist. Um, so, yeah, it's so easy, as you say, to with, with superficial translations when the languages aren't known in their full depth and richness to um, place it in, in a box that you've already kind of come to terms with that you're, you're trained to see in your own tradition. Um, yeah, so the language is, it's, it's fundamentally important. I think a lot of the, the comparative philosophers that I've looked at when it comes to methodology, they emphasize repeatedly that the language, learning the language, having good kind of philological awareness is foundational. But even, you know, and, and that's, that's a huge ask for a lot of people. And I think that's perhaps the, the tricky thing about, about um, this issue and this question is that learning Sanskrit, you know, you talk to pundits, they'll say at least 10 years, at least 10 years of full-time Sanskrit learning, then you know the language. Um, so, and, you know, it's just, it's inconceivable. So, I mean, I think what, what this discussion has highlighted is that you can get a lot out of just reading the English translation alongside, you know, a, a kind of awareness of, of the Sanskrit terms that are being translated and um, maybe having the text in the transliteration next to you so that you can see what words are being translated as well. And so then you can come across these um, these observations, as, as we have done, of, of well, Tarka is being translated as reason here but it's also being used in another context where it might not be translated as reason. So, uh, you know, if I, if I didn't know that, then I would have a very different image of, of what the person is saying. Absolutely. So I think, I think I, language, you can do a lot with, with that method. Um, sort of beyond language, um, do you find um, other difficulties working with sources in terms of um, in terms of say like having these access to archives or having access to like you know rigorous like you know good digital copies of sources or um just sort of have to like piece it together from like various texts which quote the materials at length and yeah well in 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 the last year it hasn't been particularly easy to access anything in anything in archives um i mean with 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 the texts that i work on they're there's there's not a huge there's not a huge range of um, different texts and places to sort of find them. There's nothing really in the way of proper scholarly editions. I mean, for the Hatta Zeri Yaakob, there was there were two editions. I think in 1905 and 1907 with translations into Russian and Latin, and then there was nothing useful. Yeah, yeah. In 1907, people are still using Latin as a scholarly language. It's quite impressive. But it wasn't until 1974 that there was a critical edition and translation into English, and there hasn't been one since. I mean, my girl's teacher now is working on another translation, and that's that's another point based on the thing that we were saying about translations earlier. One of the most useful things you can do, um, especially when you know you sort of have have a grasp on the language but not a complete fluency with it, is to compare different translations, different translation choices, um, the sort of alternative ways that people can have for, for thinking them through. And in particular, when you know something about the translation, the translators and the kind of lens that they're bringing to work on things. So the first guy to translate uh, the Hatata into English is uh, a Canadian Jesuit named Claude Sumner, who said, uh, said at one point that he was, I think he lived in Ethiopia for 50 or 60 years, was fluent in multiple contemporary Ethiopian language. He said, always said he was a Canadian by birth and Ethiopian by choice. And he, he sort of wrote this five volume work uh, of uh, of Ethiopian philosophy, uh, some of the translations of really early 
texts in Gers, which themselves arose out of translations from uh, Arabic or Greek. Uh, then the Hatata Zedi Yaqob himself, which he sort of came up with a critical edition of, came up with some strong arguments in favour of its authenticity. Um, and then also collected a series of uh, sort of creation myths and, and, and proverbs of the Oromo people of, of southern Ethiopia. Um, and he, you know, he was he was uh, a philosophically trained Jesuit scholar. He was very interested in Descartes' philosophy, and you can tell when he's doing these translations that he has the Descartes analogy in mind the whole time. Um, there's lots of talk of the natural light of the, you know, faculties of, of reason of of, of okay, struggling to think of too many other uh, other specific analogies at the moment. But you can really see that on the basis of this connection that he's he's already drawn we have a particular kind of translation and that the new translation uh, done by someone who's not philosophically trained but has much of a more of a background in uh, Gers Christian literature is translating a lot of those things much more philosophically neutrally such that we don't have the natural light or the faculty of reason we simply have the god-given intelligence or something like that when he's talking about it which is you know if you were to get these two texts and try and do a philosophical analysis just of the English translation, you would inevitably come to two very different conclusions based on these two different texts, um, based on the, the sort of presuppositions that we have going through it. So one of one of the sort of big projects that I think needs to happen um, before serious comparative work can be done for, for this text and other ones is to sort of come up with something of a glossary or a, or a lexicon of philosophical terms in them, a sort of range of texts in the semantic field, some explanations, some examples, um, if this sort of comparative work is going to be more than general speculations of, oh, reason, eh? Natural light, eh? Um, yeah. You know, this is when you're looking at non-European or Western philosophies. It's going to be very different, different instances. The the kind of lucky thing about well, it, it's so when it when it comes to the Buddhist stuff that I look at, I think Buddhist uh, philosophy has been you know been studied for centuries now, and especially with modern Western interpreters and the, a couple of people at Oxford, there is a kind of growing and sort of quite deep in, in my understanding awareness of these philological issues and the um, the importance of, of translation and importance of, of making glossaries. That's one thing that, that does exist in um, when it comes to Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist Sanskrit philosophy. Um, so I'm quite lucky in the, especially the text that I'm working on at the moment, the Bodhicharya Vatara, it's a very popular text and a text that's been translated multiple times for multiple languages. Um, and so, so I have sort of the resources there for, for the, the Buddhist philosophy that I'm looking at. On the Kashmiri side, on the um, side of Abhinavagupta, the translations, you know, as I've been saying, are, are far more sparse. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a process that's happening. And um, the people the people approaching it, it's a mix it's in sort of similar, um, in sort of similar way to what Jonathan's been saying, that there's, Philosophers coming at it, a couple, there's one guy called David Lawrence, um, he's a, um, I think a, a British trained, um, con like he's trained in the continental tradition, um, and he's really like looking at it from the lens of um, particular kind of Jesuit thought and transcendental argument, um, and like he does a lot of comparisons with the thought of Bernard Lonergan. Um, there's... Um, a Jesuit priest, I think, called uh, John de Pouche, 
interesting Jesuit priest who does this sort of Jesuit Christian reading of these tantric rituals, mm. which often involve like a load of sex. And so it's quite funny that, um, you know, that interest. Um, and, but then there's also the, the big guy um, at the moment who's working on Kashmiri texts is a guy called Alexis Sanderson, who's associated with Oxford. And he's very much a Sanskrit um, scholar, a philologist. So the, these these perspectives are growing and you can sort of see it. I think there's more interest, um, there's a lot more interest recently in Kashmiri Shaivism in particular. And so there's a growing body of scholarship and different translations um, arising. But yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. The the only other thing that I would, I would maybe add to that is that um, I, mean, I think that sort of contrast is really interesting in that the case of Sanskrit philosophy, we obviously have this incredibly long, incredibly deep and rich tradition of writings that are obviously recognizable to even the most parochial western philosopher as philosophy right you know you have systems and rules of inductive logic some of them might be couched in you know ideas of ritual that might seem a little bit distasteful to scientifically minded western philosophers but ultimately these things are quite obviously philosophy whereas in in the, the ethiopian and the african case we have apart from the hatata zeri yakob we have to be sort of ready to look at things as maybe being philosophical, which are not obviously so. So in the case of the Hatata, you know, there's a kind of rationalism, there's a kind of theodicy and a cosmological argument. But that's that's one of the few texts like that. Um, I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, you also obviously have the, you have the Arabic and the Jami language manuscripts of Timbuktu, which are you know continuations of broader um, philosophy in the Islamic world. But if we're wanting to look for, for other things, many African philosophers have you know, been forced to come up with and think of very different approaches to subject material and source texts, such that in many cases, these may not be written texts. How do we try and extract philosophy or something like that from a, from an oral tradition? And this is really, I think, one of the most interesting metaphilosophical questions that comes out of this is that when we don't uh, have exactly the same, you know, kinds of kinds of written texts, well, we don't have things that are so obviously recognisable to us as philosophy. What's our method of trying to get philosophical ideas? And, um, you know, I, I think that, well, not only am I convinced that that's the case, I think there are many cases where you can read philosophers and they have shown how this kind of extraction can work. It's the work of someone like Henry Oruka or uh, Frederick Ochiang uh, Odiambo, who do what's called sage philosophy, where you go to, um, they were based in Kenya, where you go to, you know some some of the, the villagers, and you you find a, an you know an elder of the village who doesn't speak a European language, hasn't um, encountered Western education, and you sit down and interview them in, in the original language in Luo or in you know Bikuyu or Kamba or whatever other language, um, and you you know take the thought of this individual thinker to be representative of a kind of philosophy. Of, of that individual thinker. There are other methods of, you know, you take the, like I said with some of them, you take the, the proverbs or the creation myths or the religious texts and you extract the philosophy from there, which is the approach that's often called ethno-philosophy. You know, this is characteristic of the whole group of people. That's really the thing that the sage philosophers are trying to push back against. There's no sense in which all Bantu peoples can be said to share the same ontological system. That doesn't make any sense. Philosophy is something which is essentially critical uh, and, you know, de de detached from that in some way. So we need to go and interview the individual thinkers and see how they criticise their sort of, you know, uh, the ways that things are habitually done. And just to sort of give one last example, um, 
coming back to the language question, one of the other routes that was taken by a Rwandan philosopher, Alexis Kagame, is to do an analysis of the structure of the language um, of, of uh, Rwandan Bantu languages and to say that we can derive, uh, again, an ethno-philosophical system, one that you know, applies to a group of people simply from the structure of that language. You know, the, the particular type of, uh, you know, the you know, tense structure is going to give us something of a philosophy of time. Understanding how subject uh, and predicate are used together in a sentence is going to give us something of an idea of an underlying ontology of that language. And I just think, yeah, it's one of the things that's most uh, fruitful for thinking about, for even people who may not think that they're so interested in the content of some of uh, these works of African philosophy, people who might not be able to recognise their own philosophical interests in that, is to think about these questions of, you know, what forms can philosophy take? How can we how can we get it out of that? The nicest metaphor I have for that one is one from Justin Smith, which says that you've got philosophy, which is, um, you know, in the ore of culture. You have this sort of, you know, gold or iron ore mixed in with all of the other rocks. Um, it's not so easily separable out as, you know, academic philosophy with our articles and our, you know, numbered bullet points and stuff. But the kind, different kinds of extraction work can help help us to get that out. I think I think that's what well said. I think, um, yeah, this. I mean, yeah, in, I think sort of relating it back to the South Asian context that I'm familiar with. It's it's interesting the, the issues that you talk about. Uh, there's maybe interesting parallels, but they're, they're very different in their own case as well. I mean, I'm, personally, I, I'm very interested in yeah the question of like what becomes philosophy, what kind of writing is counted as philosophical is interesting, and it's, it's highly disputed in the case of. A classical South Asian philosophy as well. You know, the big thing that happens, or I mean, in the case of South Asian philosophy, I'm sure it happens elsewhere in other non-Western philosophies, is whether it's philosophy or religion. And this particular separation that has occurred in kind of the history and history of the Western Academy um, has coloured the way that we look at these things. And so then you can get, you know, you can get Dharma Kirti's like, concerns about epistemology. Um, that that that's taken as as somehow kind of you know religious and it's it's fundamental association with Buddhism and then you have you know um, Descartes' arguments for the existence of God or all of um, you know Enlightenment philosophy all of uh, huge, the whole kind of tradition of Western philosophy and its um, religious situation so you know you have this divide and um, yeah I think it's interesting I mean it's a it's, it it colors the way that what text that we take as philosophy. Um, but I think for me, it's also interesting in that, you know, it, it might show as well, if we, if we expand maybe our view of what philosophy is and we, we take in some of these um, texts that might, you know, uh, prima facie seem like religion, um, it can maybe transform our understanding of what philosophy is for us. And maybe sort of, it, it, sh it brings to light how kind of particularized and narrow it becomes. Um, and yeah, I think it relates to sort of my broad interest in the way that philosophy can be integrated into a form of spirituality or how we could conceive of philosophy in this broader way that has more to do with human transformation and, and changing individual lives and changing society and, and um, the way that we see each other, um, which is a complaint that I think, you know, all of us, especially like working at OBP and people watching this podcast will, will have with um, with philosophy in general. So looking outside of Europe can be a really good way of thinking about that question.
I think there's also, you know, I mean, what Jonathan was saying in terms of Indian philosophy and, you know, um, certain forms of Indian philosophy, you know, still recognizable in the West as philosophy, but there are forms of Indian philosophy which are not, right? Like, you know, I mean, indigenous types of philosophy or like folk religious cultures, um, you know, that I'm familiar with in like because of my cultural context, but, you know, um, I, I wonder how much of that, you know, I mean, I do, I do think that there's something to be said about, like, you know, when you don't even know, like, the sort of highest, most Brahminical way of doing, like, say, like, Hindu philosophy in the West, and you're trying to introduce that project, um, you know, uh, it's difficult to, like, bring in all of the other forms. And obviously, it's, uh, you know, like a subcontinent with, uh, like, you know, so many years of history and continued you know, work of philosophy. Um, so, yeah, so I, I imagine that there's like, you know, lots still to do in the field. Um, but I guess that's a cause for optimism, really. <laughs> it's exciting. It's, it's fun. It's, it does feel in a way that sort of studying maybe Western philosophers, it's not something that I've done a huge amount. Um, but I can imagine if you're trying to write something on Hegel or Kant, you know, it's going to be so, you're going to be flooded with all of these other writings of other people who've really gone down a very similar line that you have. But if you're doing comparative work, if you're looking at texts that people haven't translated yet, it's fun, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, really. Uh, maybe it's sort of like, sorry. No, sorry, go. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna, well, I mean, really, like, uh, we've talked about this, like, you know, throughout the podcast, but maybe you could, like, talk about your experiences of studying, like, non-Western philosophy in, like, a formal way in Western institutions and speak to, sort of, the project of, you know, diversifying philosophy, uh, not only philosophy happening everywhere else, but, like, really this idea of, like, decolonizing the curriculum or, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's actually one of the points about diversifying and, and decolonizing was one of the ones that I was just about to make. So I, I, I guess I'll say that and then can can mention something about the sort of the context of it, because I think that's, you know, you know of studying these things is very relevant. So, I mean, with with what Amu was saying about, um, you know, there's there's both the the interest of uh, studying philosophy from other parts of the world simply because people from different parts of the world have come up with different ideas and exciting and new ones in different languages in different forms. And that's going to be intrinsically interesting anyway. And if we want to teach the most interesting and wide ranging and profound range of things, we should include all of those stuff too. But I feel like if what if our if our conception of diversifying philosophy is simply adding different names in different languages to um, a list of things that are already broadly recognizable as philosophy, then we've missed something of an opportunity. We haven't diversified as much as we can do in the sense that I think what, what some of the things that these texts ask, you know, they ask about this borderline between religious texts and philosophical ones, ask whether that's really such an easily defined one and whether we should think about our conception as philosophy as including the latter as well as the former, or as some of them or as not, or whether some kinds of scientific uh, writings should be included or should not, or whether some, you know, uh, mystical or historical reflections that verge into philosophical territory might be included in a broader conception of it. So I think it's not only the case that by studying non-Western philosophies, we can find other things that conform to our pre-existing idea of philosophy to include in it, but in encountering these alternatives, we're coming up with a new idea of it anyway, right? If we're rethinking what the canon's meant to look like, let's also think about what philosophy in general might look like while we're there. Um, and that, I think, would be a good thing for philosophy and would be something that would be good for the academy more generally, because 
at the moment, we do have this kind of situation where I don't know if you mentioned it. I mean, are you in a philosophy department or are you in a sort of theology or? Yeah, so I mean, exactly. You're studying stuff which is obviously philosophy in the theology department. Um, I'm studying stuff that's obviously philosophy uh, with an intellectual historian in a comparative literature department. Um, and many other people end up in, uh, you know, all, all sorts of different different parts of parts of the academy to, to try and do this work. And you can understand why, you know, things things have ended up in this way. Different disciplines have to sort of, you know, guard their particular, um, you know, institutional definitions, and especially when universities are having such a terrible time as they are at the moment, and they're all trying to sort of, you know, fill their little funding pots for themselves. You need to have a very strong, rigorous definition and not allow anything that doesn't, you know, that, that, that challenges that. But it seems to me that, especially given a lot of the stuff that we were saying about linguistic backgrounds with historical backgrounds being really important for doing this sort of work, it's got to be essentially interdisciplinary in some ways, right? You can't just be sort of doing your, um, you know, Descartes to Kant course with with a little bit of logic and maybe some, some metaethics all on the side. You need to, you know, you need you need to really broaden the range of stuff that you're interested in um, and and studying and. I just say that I think you know, I think that philosophy departments are going to have to move in the direction number one of offering more you know a wider range of uh, historical philosophies and of engaging with these sorts of questions that you know with, with existential and um, political social questions rather than necessarily the sort of core topics at the moment if if they're to ha if they're to have if they're to have much of a future. And so the only thing I'd say to somebody who might be thinking about whether to do that or not is if you are interested in this stuff, just do it. Do it in whichever department happens to be offering that stuff at the moment. If you need to go to an Indian studies one, if you need to go to a comparative literature department, go where someone will help you with the languages, go where you'll get a good supervisor. Because by the time you've finished your PhD, the particular you know hot topic in analytic metaphysics will probably have gone and passed. Um, but I think departments are simply moving in the direction of having to accommodate this sort of work. So if you're if you're interested in it, just do it. Yeah. I also think that it's really like, you know, comes down to a question of how you do philosophy. Mm. Because, you know, the kind of things we take for given while doing non-Western philosophy, like contextualizing it or like, you know, these sort of like, um, or at least like a sort of appreciation of like a linguistic barrier or uh, an attention to historical mm. context. If we did that in the sort of traditional Western philosophies, that would only enrich, you know, our understanding of these philosophies that we think we know so well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think analytic philosophy is kind of famous for being like very silencing when it comes to history and its own kind of particularity and its broader historical context. So, so yeah, I think you know this whole the this term interdisciplinary, right? I think it sort of kind of sums up the, the move, the direction that these like departments and the the way that we need to be thinking, the, the, the way that they need to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I have I've been quite lucky in that. In the theology department in Oxford, there are a couple of people who really take South Asian philosophy seriously as a philosophy. I could imagine that like, if I was in a different university with a different department, I would have to study these things as philosophy under people who had more um, historical, um, kind of philological interests, um, who were sort of more on the kind of Buddhist studies, religious studies kind of side of um, the department. 
but I've been lucky enough to study under people like Jessica Fraser, Gavin Flood, Ian Vesthoff, three people in particular who really, their, their work really is about um, taking something in philosophy, having as much of a philological um, awareness as they can, but then putting it into conversation with modern philosophy with and seeing it as philosophy so the, the way that we would treat modern Western philosophical texts. Um, so it's been nice to have that in the theology department. Um, but yeah, just thinking about how you know the departments are separated in the way that they are. I mean, it's it's um I remember one of my tutors saying in a talk that she gave that she could envision you know, a future Oxford where there wasn't a theology faculty and a philosophy faculty. There was just a philosophies faculty. There was a faculty in which um, these things were studied together in, in relation to each other. Um, and so that would then necessarily incorporate historical, linguistic, philological thinking, as well as philosophical thinking in the analytic tradition. And the um, Oxford's philosophy department is, is uh, constituted by. But it would just be like this general umbrella of, of studying pe the way that people have made sense of the world in its kind of broadest, um, in its broadest sense. Um, and I, I would see that as a, a really positive thing. I think if I could sort of imagine a practical and sort of future direction, having a philosophies department, I mean, it, it, it might be huge. I, I'm not sure about the practicalities of like university uh, logistics, but yeah, that kind of way of thinking. Well, um, I guess we'll end with um, sort of reading recommendations or any other advice you might have for students interested in these fields, um, you know, reading recommendations, books, articles, podcasts, or um, just like philosophers, contemporary and old, um, who've just opened up new ways of thinking for you. And they don't have to be like, you know, from your traditions, they can be just anyone that you just enjoy the work that they do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I feel like I've put you guys on the spot. <laughs> That's I, I'll I'll just list off some of the first things that come to mind. If you're if you're interested in some of the sort of metaphilosophical questions that I was mentioning then about different styles and approaches to philosophy, uh, the very best thing uh, you can read on that is uh, Suleiman Bashir Jian's uh, Ink of Ink of the Scholars, which is a book about. Um, the, the methodologies of philosophy in Africa, putting a particular emphasis on the written traditions, which often get overlooked in discussions of ethnic philosophy and sage philosophy. Um, anything, anything by Suleiman Bashirjian is is fantastic. So that's that's all heartily recommended. Um, when it comes to the the Hatata, the Ethiopian philosopher that I was just talking about. Um, there are some scholars at Addis Ababa University who uh, are doing really interesting work on this, including uh, Binyam Makonan and Fezal Marawi. Uh, both of them will be speaking at, uh, shameless plug by the way, at a, uh, the Hatata Zeri Yaakov conference, um, which will be in Oxford next year. Um, there's plenty of plenty of thinkers in that. Peter Adamson from the History of Philosophy podcast that I imagine everyone will have heard of. Um, is fantastic. Justin Smith, who I, I nicked that phrase about the philosophy and the awe of culture and who writes incredibly interestingly about um, these different methodologies and ways of getting at philosophy. His book, The Philosopher in Six Types, is yeah, heartily, heartily, heartily recommended. And um, yeah, that read, read the Hatata itself. It's very short. It's very cool. Um, and yeah, learn girls too. So, Blooming girls. <laughs> I get on it. I get on it. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, okay. It's it's um yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard question. I can sort of mention as as Jonathan did things that come to mind. Um well one thing I've been reading recently, I think I have a copy somewhere, uh, maybe not. Um it's Stephen Bachelor's uh, Alone with Us uh, Alone with Others, an existential approach to Buddhism. I think he was a monk in Tibet and in Korea for, for many years. And so he has a really kind of um first-hand inside a perspective on Buddhist practice, but then he puts it into the terms of um, Western existentialist phenomenologists. So it really kind of covers the foundations of Buddhism. Um, and he does what I'm really interested in doing, which is having a really faithful um, understanding of these traditions, but putting it in language that kind of expands the scope of people who can understand it and, and might you know, also reveal aspects of that tradition that, that if you only go um, to translations you might miss. Um, so I think that's a great book. Um, in, in the Buddhist side, there's um, a guy called Karl Bernholzl. He has a book called The Center of the Sunlit Sky. It's a massive tome on the Dhyanamaka philosophy. He too is a practitioner, someone in um, the Tibetan Kaju tradition. Um, and that's a really fantastic book on the Dhyanamaka, really um, sort of quite readable. He goes into the practical implications, how to do meditation, gives you kind of instruction in some of the Amoka forms of meditation. So it really bridges this gap between um, philosophy, religion, and spiritual practice. Um, and then on the Hinduism side, there's people like Jessica Fraser, one of my tutors, has a book called Hindu Worldviews, has an essay on the, um, the Chandogya Upanishad and Heidegger's phenomenology of the religious life. Um, there was a great, that's a great essay, a great book. She is really interested in, in treating Hindu philosophy as philosophy. And then the Hindu Worldviews book has a really interesting opening section on philosophical methodology and comparative philosophy. Talks about hermeneutic questions. She's a big um, um, scholar of Gadamer. And so there's these, Hans-Georg Gadamer is a um, German hermeneutician. Um, so she has interesting perspectives on methodology. Um, and then there's also people like Chakravarti Ramprasad. Um, he has a book and I forget the name of it, but I'm sure if you type his name in, you'll, you'll find it. Um, there's Janardhan Ganeri. Uh, he had a really fascinating essay on Jaina philosophy. Um, I think it's called Epistemic Pluralism from Systems to Stances. That's a really fascinating, um, really kind of analytically written essay um, that brings in analytic philosophy, analytic philosophers, but uses Jaina philosophy as its foundation. Um, so yeah, those are things that I can think of. Um, I'm sure there's so much more, and there are really great people doing really great work in this field. Um, so, so yeah, keep exploring and learn Sanskrit. Well, thank you so much for the recommendations, and thank you so much for being here today and speaking to all of these different issues and questions. And um, yeah, giving such a good, like you know, uh, view of your experiences learning non-Western philosophy. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Shruti. It's been fun. Thank you for making room for the possibility of strengthening, broadening, or contesting our interpretive frameworks and field of consideration. Many thanks to the end.